October the 16th, 2016, lecture discussion number 257, maybe, I hope, I don't know for sure, I'm just going with it every week. Now, on the book of Romans, we are currently and presently, not the same thing, look it up, at Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. That's where we are, which means we're actually at Revelation 13 and 17, along with Daniel 7 and Daniel 2. And not necessarily in that order or any order, for that matter. Ooh, my soda. Different spot. Why is that? Anyway, that's where we are and where we will be mostly today. So if you have been absent and who among you have not been absent, now is the time to uh, peruse those chapters a bit. I think they're in the bulletin. Let me look. Yes, it is. Uh, That's the seven heads, the ten horns, the ten crowns. Let me start putting some of that on there. Seven heads. Oops. Ten horns. Ten crowns. And that's information that is coming out of Revelation 17. Obviously, we have the beast that was and is not and yet is and will ascend and go to perdition. So let's go ahead and throw him in there because we'll be dealing with that a little bit. The the little horn that comes up in Daniel. Behold, there's a little horn. Most of you know that the little horn is, in fact, the beast. Eyes like a man, a mouth speaking pompous things. So go ahead and quickly gain some familiarity with that while I insert today's news. The news portion of the sermon. Uh, Somebody from Pennsylvania, John, sent us a pumpkin roll. (laughs) Is that great? That is great. When I first read it, it looked like, thank you for shopping. I thought it was a giant pumpkin roll, but it just says, thank you for shopping at Giant. Giant must be a supermarket. Let's see, the uh, uh, best, uh, best to sell by October the 8th. So, that's still within the realm of, of consumption. But isn't that marvelous, the pumpkin roll? This made me laugh. He also sent candy so that if you get a question right, I can throw a piece of candy at you. So, I'm doing that. I mean, come on. That's got to be great fun. <laughs> This is going to raise attendance, you know. I mean, <laughs> uh, anyway, that just just uh, made me smile. It's very delightful, and once again, it demonstrates that they do pay attention to every little thing that I that I say and that you say. So keep that in mind. Hopefully, you've noticed. The international events that are occurring, those of you on the internet, we uh, covered just a little bit before, but I'll repeat most of it here. The United Nations, actually UNESCO, it's not the United Nations in the sense uh, it's, it's an arm of the United Nations, but UNESCO has, which is United Nations Educational and Scientific Cultural Organization, that's what that is. They have, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they have... Um, passed a resolution, advanced a resolution, which denies that Israel has any historical claim to the Temple Mount. This is a lot bigger deal than you might think. They're essentially declaring that there is no Jewish connection to the Western Wall. 
which is the holiest site in, in uh, the Jewish faith, Judaism. They're proclaiming that the Temple Mount, the West Wall, all of that is solely Islamic. They passed that revelation 24 to 6. As you know, Islam has three elevated holy sites, Mecca, Medina, and the Dome of the Rock, which is also called the Noble Sanctuary. That's the third, that's the Temple Mount. The Noble Sanctuary, the Islam Noble Sanctuary, is the Jewish Temple Mount. And the Jewish Temple Mount, as you know, as we all know, supported two Jewish temples, the Solomonic and the Herodian. The UNESCO... Resolution, the UN resolution through UNESCO casts all of that aside. It refuses to acknowledge any Jewish connection whatsoever to the Temple Mount. It says none has ever existed. So what does this mean? What's the uh, obvious uh, questions, geopolitical questions? Well, the first one would be, uh, what's the United States going to do about this? The United States voted against it. Let's all say yay. They're one of the six. Those of you who say, yeah, get some candy. (laughs) Hey! So far, no one can play left field. (laughs) One piece went backwards, so I can't, uh, I can't pitch. But I have six or seven more to go. You know, eh! Congratulations back there in the back row. I need one of those cannon things. And we can shoot t-shirts. And can. <laughs> Maybe somebody will send me a cannon with t-shirts. Oh, I woke the baby up? That's not a, re- a bad thing, is it? <laughs> did, did the baby catch a piece of candy? Oh, well, there you go. That'll bring them to church the rest of their lives, trying to duplicate that. <laughs> okay, where am I? Probably lost the seriousness of this. Okay. The United States voted against it. And I, that was, I shouldn't have been too surprised by that, but I am expecting the United States not to support Israel very soon. The Bible tells me that's what happens. Estonia, Lithuania, Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, and the United States voted against this resolution out of UNESCO. Now, The key question, I believe, is, is it going to evolve eventually into a U.N. resolution? And I think that's that's true. And now we have to say, what is the impact of telling the Jews that they have no right to the Temple Mount? And they issue a U.N. resolution. And that puts the Jews into a position of violating a U.N. resolution. It's just a UNESCO. Will the United Nations continue to attack the ownership of the city of Jerusalem, or in this case, the Temple Mount. What's the purpose of this? Uh, Oh, I really did wake the baby, didn't I? That's okay. You don't have to leave unless unless you're going to get candy. Would you like more candy? Okay. (laughs) Oh, yes. Starting center fielder right there. Oh, my goodness. How can I get in more trouble? Just wait. Right now, just think about the purpose of this, and let me point this out. There's more to 
the city of Jerusalem than just the aspect that we see. What I mean by that is this is an ancient battle. What I mean by that is this is a spiritual battle between spiritual entities. There's more to Jerusalem than just the physical. Having said that, let's go back to the United States. The U.S. administration, as it now exists, does not allow any U.S. document to come out of the State Department, or any department for that matter, to be written that implies the city of Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. If a United States document escapes with Jerusalem as an Israeli-based, I'm sorry, escapes with Jerusalem as Israeli-based, it is immediately deleted and corrected. Did you see that happen recently? The Obama administration issued a notification that listed Jerusalem as Israeli, and then immediately they canceled that. Of course, now if you put anything out, it, gets, it stays there forever in the digital world. But they immediately canceled it and, and blocked out or lined through Israeli, the Israeli ownership of Jerusalem or this Israeli right to Jerusalem. That is the norm right now of United States policy. Why would that be? What's wrong with us, you should ask? Why is the ownership of Jerusalem an issue? And certainly the United Nations, which has long been decidedly anti-Israel, is relentless. They don't, they don't waste a day. Something anti-Israel comes out of the United Nations every single day, if not every single hour. They hate Israel in that United Nations. The hatred is palatable. Why? The United Nations relentlessly attacks Israel's claim to Jerusalem. Again, why are they doing that? What do they hope to gain? The Bible does not leave any ambiguity. It all begins with Melchizedek, Genesis 14. He is the king of Jerusalem. He's identified as the king of Salaam, Jerusalem. He's also the high priest of God Most High. And that is an extraordinarily important piece of information to notice for all of us. Melchizedek has both of these titles. The King of Jerusalem and the High Priest of God Most High. That's amazing. Because those things, both of those titles can only be held by Christ himself. So that means that Melchizedek is in fact Christ himself. Genesis 14. Christ also has the prophet of God. He is the prophet, he is the high priest, and he is the king. Those three titles that only God himself, only Christ, God himself, is able to fulfill or hold concurrently in one breath. So Jesus himself, in Genesis 14, claims Jerusalem for himself. He is the king of the Jews. He is the owner of the temple. The the temple is called the house of God. Nothing else is called the house of God except the temple. Now, you would say, well, there's a church down the street called the House of God. Yes, they're idiots. I'm sorry, not really sorry. They're not really idiots either. Um, They just don't understand. God calls the temple the house, my house. That's where he dwells on earth physically. Don't create confusion in Christians. It's way too easy. Having said all of that, 
it is obvious that Jerusalem is for the Jews. It is a God-established truth. God declares it. The Jews shall possess Jerusalem. The United Nations says, no, Islam is the owner of Jerusalem. How do you think this is going to go? What will the God of creation ultimately do? How will he respond, to use a human perspective word? Israel, as a result of this uh, UNESCO resolution, has suspended all cooperation with the United Nations now. Here comes the acceleration, the escalation. It is interesting to note which countries voted against Israel. Now, uh, 24 of them did. I'm going to name five, which I think are the most prominent. Egypt, Iran, Lebanon, Russia, and China. Now, I expect the Islamic countries, especially Persia uh, and Lebanon and Egypt. But when you see Russia and China, now bells and whistles should start flying around. What are they thinking? I just again notice that the nations of the world take the time to write down on paper that they hate the God of Israel. That's, that's, and they hate the Jews and they want to see Israel destroyed. They, they don't put it in those words, but that is their intent and that is their will and that is their heart. And they have no regard for any consequences. Fascinates me. I just don't see the value in that. So how do they get to these kinds of positions? The key question, in my opinion, to repeat it, is, is the purpose. What are they going to gain? Is there an economic value to Russia and China for participating in voting against Israel? What's the economic value? I, I submit there isn't any. Russia has oil reserves. Have you noticed that the Israelis have discovered oil now there? There's still, the United States, our oil reserves are ridiculous. Uh, Alaska here, we've now found another 6 to 10 billion, um, perhaps uh, easily recoverable oil on the North Slope area. If that really turns out to be the case. But there's oil, lots of places. Russia has oil reserves, very high amounts. China, not so much. China utilizes coal. I find it so fascinating, the war on coal in this country. When China is out there, it's just burning all the coal they can get. Who do you think produces more coal emissions? West Virginia or China? I mean, come on. Kind of idiocy is that, I shouldn't say that. Am I in a bad mood today? No, I have candy and I have a pumpkin roll. I'll try not, I'll try not to be provocative. <laughs> Russia has oil. China utilizes coal. China would like to have oil. It's more efficient. Uh, natural gas certainly is more efficient. BTUs per hour. Eventually, all that, essentially, I'm sorry, effectively, all that the Middle East has to offer economically is oil and sand. That's it. Energy. So, how does removing Jerusalem from Israel affect China's access to Middle East oil? You might say it puts them in the good graces of the Middle East uh, sources of oil, but China has so much military power and so much uh, need for oil. They are the number one customer in that area. The delivery system is certainly cheaper. They use a lot of fuel. They have 
almost one and a half billion people. They're going to use more fuel. So I think that Russia and China have disparate intentions. Neither seem to be economic to me, and I therefore submit by, by elimination that these are military intentions. Two adversaries who are positioning themselves and see an advantage of Israel being diminished. They are not on each other's side. China and Russia are not on the same side. But yet they both voted to establish Islam as the owner of Jerusalem. And I mentioned in the pregame, for those of you on the Internet, that Russia is moving aircraft carriers and Iran is moving warships. A Russian aircraft carrier never travels alone. It always has nuclear submarines uh, in its system. So there are four nuclear powers involved in the Syrian civil war. One small mistake, and this thing goes up. So it's uh, to our advantage to always pay attention. On top of that, Again, is this spiritual aspect, the Melchizedek factor, I will call it. Why does God want Jerusalem? Why does he call himself the owner of this place? Why this place? Why didn't he pick Florida? Or the beaches of France. He wants Jerusalem. He calls himself the king of Jerusalem. Why this spot? It's named after him, Jehovah Jireh Salam. God provides himself for peace, Jerusalem. He named it. He owns it. He wants it. Somebody else wants it. Who do you suppose that is? We have two. We have the God of creation. And we have Satan who wants this place. And the world will fight on the side of Satan against God over Jerusalem. So you have to ask, what happened here? Have you ever had a discussion on this before? Raise your hand, get a piece of candy. Nobody. Nobody has had a discussion. What are the most common views? I have bubblegum. Hubba Bubba to give away today. I mean, I just like saying Hubba Bubba. That's why. What are the discussions? There are many views. Number one, in the Jewish traditions, again, it's Jewish traditions. Those are not inspired word of God. Every one that I'm going to give you has a flaw except one. I won't tell you which one that is. The, the Jewish tradition says Jerusalem is where God pulled the dust out in which he made Adam. Have you heard that? Raise your hand. No. Okay. That's the most common. You'll hear the tree of life. You'll hear the tree of surely die or the tree of death. How far apart were the two trees? In the, how big was the garden? They're in the midst of the garden. How far apart are they? Did you assume they are side by side? Why would you assume that? What does mist mean? How big is the middle? I have the tree of life. I have the tree of death. Is this Cain and Abel? Is this where Cain slew Abel? Is this where the two lambs were slain to cover Adam and Eve? Is this where Adam, 
uh, ate the fruit. Is this where Eve was builded out of Adam? Where, what is this spot? What happened to it? Is this the place of the trial of Satan? Why does Satan want this place to be in the hands of Islam and not Jerusalem? I left a few out, but I just want you to start thinking about we're fighting over a spot and it's a supernatural fight that's being manifested physically. And what is this spot? There are lots of spots in the Bible. Satan was the first king of Eden, right? Why does the Antichrist gather his armies against this city? He leads them to destroy Jerusalem. Is this Satan's revenge? Is this somehow part of Satan's first lie? Obviously, this is the subject of Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. The Antichrist lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. He seeks to destroy it. Again, what's the point? Note, at this time in Revelation, in the tribulation, the Jews have the city, so Islam is not going to get the city. The Jews are going to get the city. When do the Jews get the city? Right now, they don't have it. What make what happens that causes Israel to now have total control of the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount? What happened to the Dome of the Rock? That's all coming, isn't it? Much to the dismay of, of UNESCO. So the Antichrist comes after Jerusalem, and Jerusalem ultimately falls to the Antichrist. Have you read your Zechariah 12? After what is described as seemingly supernatural resistance by the Jewish people, there's a description in Zechariah 12 that says the feeble, that would be people like me, the feeble fight as David, as mighty men of David. How do the feeble fight as mighty men of David? What's the biological advance that causes that? How far does Israel go to where old people like me are fighting like mighty men, like David? What was David like? Saul was pretty amazing. Saul could cut an ox in half by himself. How does the Antichrist prevail against these feeble people that fight like mighty men? To repeat the question from last Sunday, how does the Antichrist convince the world that he can kill God? He can kill Jesus Christ. Remember, I'm sure you do, Ezekiel 38, the Russian Federation fails to take Jerusalem. The Antichrist succeeds when the Antichrist attacks Jerusalem, his capital of Babylon is burned. Isaiah 13.3. And you know that I think this is the Assyrians that do this. Isaiah 19.24. They, as soon as the Antichrist army mobilizes towards Jerusalem, the Assyrians pour down into Babylon and burn it. Destroy the city of Babylon. Okay, the, the, the destination of this little rabbit trail I just threw at you today is to demonstrate that the target is the city of Jerusalem. Everyone pursues Jerusalem. Only a very few people know why this is, and we should be in that few. We should know why, which is why we're endeavoring to do all of this, and that is Revelation 17 and chapter 18, 17, chapter 17, chapter 18, and Daniel chapters 2 and 7. Okay, so all of that for that. That was the introduction.
wasn't so bad, you got some candy. Did you happen to see the report from the University of Nottingham, the astrophysics department? I think this is cool, which should worry you. The astrophysics department of the University of Nottingham put together an international uh, cooperation. They've been attempting to count the universe. Why not? Actually, it's a really good idea. They want to know how many galaxies. Previously, they had counted about 200 billion galaxies. Now, each galaxy contains approximately 100,000 million stars, give or take a billion. You do the computation. You have cell phones. Go ahead. How many stars we got if we have 200 billion galaxies and 100,000 million stars? But they appear to have uh, made a miscalculation. Ha! Huh. Makes me laugh. There's not 200 billion galaxies, apparently. The renowned assembled international team of astrophysicists. Who pays these guys? That's right, you do. <laughs> That's why they do these things, right? What's the value of knowing this? Well, actually, there isn't uh, any... Uh, economic value or any sociological value, except there is a spiritual value, because this is a spiritual question. But they have determined so far that there isn't 200 billion galaxies. They were wrong. There are 2 trillion galaxies. You have more math to do. They made a mistake by a factor of 10. Previous estimates off by a factor of 10. Not 200 billion, 2 trillion galaxies. We should start naming them. I'm proposing Galaxy Steve. I'm, I'm expecting it to be warmly received. Hopefully you see the implications of two trillion plus galaxies with a hundred thousand million stars in each of them. The question can't be escaped. Why so many stars? What is God doing? Here is the simpler question that is phrased horribly wrong, but just for fun, I'll do it for you. Does he need these many stars? What's the answer to that? He's omniscient. Yes. Why so many stars? What's he doing with them? Why has God done this? What is he saying? Why are they moving away, stretching out red-shifted light versus blue-shifted light? Certainly the wise will know what he's doing. Got to put this in our things-to-know list. That was fun. Only a few people left. Half a dozen asleep. So far, better than average Sunday. Still time. Last week, we ventured into Daniel 7, the vision of the four beasts. The Belshazzar king vision, right? The vision of Daniel that occurs under King Belshazzar in contrast to King Nebuchadnezzar, his dream of Daniel 2. Belshazzar doesn't have a dream. I just label it the Belshazzar vision because it happens under Belshazzar versus the Nebuchadnezzar dream that happens under King Nebuchadnezzar. Hopefully that made some sense. Well, we've gotten now back to where we belong, Daniel 7, 
because of Revelation 17, 9 through 11. I want to read Revelation 17, 9 through 11 for you again, because it'll be quick. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads, there are seven heads to deal with, are seven mountains which on which the woman sits. So I have a woman, we know that's the great whore, the great harlot of Babylon. She's sitting on the seven heads that are seven mountains. There are also seven kings. So each mountain or each head is a king and a mountain. Does that make sense? Five have fallen, so five mountains have fallen and five kings have fallen. One is and the other has yet to come. So five kings have fallen, five mountains have fallen or kingdoms have fallen, and one is right now at the time John wrote this and the other has yet has not yet come. And when the other comes, he must continue a short time. So the kingdom must continue a short time. And the king must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. So, seven kings that are seven kingdoms, seven mountains with, I'm sorry, seven heads that are seven kingdoms, seven mountains with seven kings. Five kings have fallen. One is. One is yet to come. And again, five kingdoms have fallen as well. One is and one is yet to come. And these are certainly not Jewish kingdoms. These are Gentile kingdoms. The eighth kingdom is not, so there's seven of them, seven Gentile kingdoms. The eight, there's an eighth kingdom coming, that's the Messianic, that's the Jewish kingdom. And Jesus Christ is the king of that kingdom and Jerusalem is the city of the king. He is the king of kings. He's going to set his throne into the millennial temple. He's the owner of the temple. It's his house, so the owner is in his house. God is in his house. God in the house of God. Now, back to those seven heads, seven kingdoms. There's going to be a seventh king of Revelation 17, 9 through 11. That's the Antichrist. Not, don't confuse the Antichrist himself with the Antichrist's seventh Gentile kingdom. Though the verbiage is interchangeable. The seventh king, in my view, mostly. The seventh king, in my view, and others, is of Jewish descent. I believe that the Antichrist is of Jewish descent. I subscribe to Arthur Pink's position on that. Clarence Larkin. Uh, let me think. M.R. DeHaan. Quite a few. Let me put it this way. I subscribe to the position that the Antichrist is somewhat of Jewish descent. There. That makes it a little bit more complicated. And he is himself the eighth king. Wait a minute, I thought I only had seven kings. No, we have eight kings, because the Antichrist is one of those seven kings. He has one of those seven kingdoms, but there's, he's also the eighth king. That's the somewhat of Jewish descent part. The seventh king is also the eleventh horn, or the little horn, of Daniel. Got all that so far? Test in 15 minutes. Winner gets the hubba bubba. Did I flip the page correctly? Yes. Revelation 17, 9, 11 has, as it, has its subjects to repeat it all, to try to recap it for you. 
seven kingdoms with seven kings. Five of these have fallen and one kingdom is at the time John wrote it. So now we know who the sixth kingdom is. The sixth kingdom is at the time that John wrote it. John knew about all six of these so far. He knew of the seven, six of them he was familiar with. And one of them was was contemporary with him. That is, of course, the Roman kingdom. So the sixth head of the seven heads of Revelation 17 is the Roman Empire. The seventh is the other that has not come. And when the seventh kingdom does come, it's only going to exist for a very short time. What's the obvious question? How long is short? Or how short is short? You can pick. Who knows how long is short? Bible tells us. Somebody knows how long is short. Satan. He knows the answer to how long is short. How does he know the answer to how long is short? Satan knows why it's the length it is, too. Here is wisdom. Know how long is short and know why. You should consider the considerations. For example, what else has taken this length of time besides this last empire? Okay, another subject of Revelation 17, 9 through 11, is this beast that was... So at the time of John, the beast was and is not, is himself also the eighth, and is one of the seven, and is going to perdition. That's quite a complicated verse. I can't underestimate it. I can't repeat it enough. I certainly can't overestimate it either. For today, note that Revelation 17, 9, 11 directly corresponds to Daniel 7, 1 through 11 and Daniel 2, 36 through 45. So in order to understand that verse in Revelation 17, off we're going to have to go to Daniel 7 and Daniel 2. That being said, reconciling these seven heads with the four beasts of Daniel 7 is not simple. Did you think it would be? We're going to have to gather many pieces, assemble them as we can. Not as easy as pie, simple as cake as you would think. It requires the lost art of Concentration. Something the governmental school system finds unnecessary nowadays. I was reading just how badly we do at math in this country. We are really bad at math. But we think we're the best at math. That's the truth. We really do. They ask us, how good at math are you? And we as a nation go, we're the best. When we as a nation are one of the worst. So we've become, what's that word I've been using a lot today? Idiots who are convinced we are geniuses. There's nothing worse than thinking that you're the best at something that you're the worst at. I've had the experience. Anyway, Daniel 7. Daniel has a dream. Four beasts arise. Let's go back and look at that really fast again. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of... Daniel doesn't have a dream. Yes, Daniel does have a dream. Sorry. In the first year, I got confused again. More medicine. I know some of you would say, still. You got confused still. You'd be right. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. 
that had something to do with those heads, horns, crowns, beasts, eighth, seventh, all that stuff that made no sense to you. Daniel has a dream, had a dream, and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, I saw in my visions by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. I said last week, this is, this is reflective of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where the Holy Spirit hovers over the deep. So again, I have God involved in stirring up the great sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, Mediterranean Sea, sorry. Right now, there are Russian aircraft carriers. Kind of tying it together there, in case you're one. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it, and suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said, Thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a beast, uh, like a leopard, sorry, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking into pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that ever were before it, and it had ten horns. Aha! Now we know that these four beasts have something to do with the seven heads, five are fallen, one is one is yet to come. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one. That has something to do with the Antichrist. I'll just give you that right off the top. Coming up from among them, before, before whom three of its first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words, as opposed to the one that had a man's heart given to it. That was the first one. Beware of people that have pompous words. So. Let me find where I want to be now. Keep in mind the context. As a trained professional, I found my place again. Israel is in captivity at the time that Daniel wrote this. And Daniel is in great despair. It's a shock to all of Jews, all of Jewishness, Judum, that, that they were put into captivity by Babylonians. You know the story. They won't even eat the Babylonian food. The Babylonians have control of Israel. They killed as many as they needed to, and they took away the ruling class. Daniel was in that ruling class. He's now in captivity. So this is the context of that. The messianic kingdom now doesn't look like it's coming anytime soon to Daniel. So what does he want to know? 
When is the messianic kingdom coming? When is the king of the Jews coming to establish his kingdom over all of the world? That's what he wants to know. He has a vision. What does he decide that vision is? That's the question that is on his mind. And he knows because of Daniel 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's vision or Nebuchadnezzar's dream that his his dream has something to do with the coming of the messianic kingdom. So we should know that. When will the Messiah come and end the age of the Gentiles? That's the question of the central question of Israel. It has been asked repeatedly for over 2,500 years. That question, when is the end of the age of the, of the Gentiles? That's the same thing the disciples did in Matthew 24, 3. How long, O Lord? Daniel was asking that question. How long, O Lord, before your kingdom comes? That's the context. How long, O Lord? When will Israel be restored? When will the king of kings come? And this dream of Daniel answers that question pretty much. Why do we need to know this? Could happen within... I mean, it could happen in the next six months. We could be the generation that sees the end of the age of the Gentiles. You could be the end of the, the generation that sees this. That is an unbelievable place to be. You cannot imagine the implications of that. So you may possess the answer, is what I'm trying to tell you. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, therefore, once again, another example of God revealing his clock or his time. He is telling us when the time is going to be. You can figure out how much time you have to the end of the age of the Gentiles. You can get it to within a year. How's that going to affect your credit report? How's that going to affect your attitude about little tiny things like pick something? Revelation 17.9 tells us the great harlot of Babylon sits on seven heads. Babylon has just seen, just, just taken Jerusalem. Daniel's in Babylon. So, Revelation 17.9 tells us there's going to be seven heads and the harlot is going to be on top of these seven heads. If you want to think of it this way, not just collectively, but individually. So, think of the harlot on top of each one of these heads. So, if you want to see seven harlots on seven heads, that would be appropriate in my view. And Daniel identifies four of these seven heads and tells you who they are. John told you that five of them have fallen and one is. And that raises at least two obvious questions, doesn't it? What about these four beasts make, makes God call them out from all of the other Gentile nations? Why does the mystery whore of Babylon sit on these seven heads? Seven. Third obvious question, where are the other three heads? Daniel only talks about four of them. John tells me there's seven. Why didn't God, 
Daniel give me seven. He doesn't. Well, we still got Daniel two. Fourth obvious question. Why was Daniel given only for the seven kingdoms or the seven mountains? As you know, if you're students of history, I know you are, there have been other extraordinary empires. The Chinese is an extraordinary empire in history. The dynasties of the Chinese. Why didn't God pick them? Why didn't the harlot sit on top of the heads of the Chinese dynasties? We've had the British Empire. The British Empire was the largest landmass empire in the history of the world, post-blood. How come the British Empire isn't in this list? I'm telling you, the British Empire isn't in the list. The Spanish, they conquered the Aztecs. That was an empire. The Incans, that was an empire. How come the harlot doesn't, isn't on? Why are these seven the ones that the harlot sits on top of? Genghis Khan, the Mongols, Islam, the Ottoman Empire, Egypt, Assyria. What is the criteria? Why has God chosen, identified these four specific Gentile empires, the, the, uh, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the beast? Who are they? Who is this information for? Why did he give the information? It is for the wise. It is for us. We're the ones who are going to see the last empire. This is for us. This is for you. You have a letter from God. Dear Steve, this could happen in my lifetime easily. I suspect it will. I want to know. He's going to make me want to know. I will either know because I want to know or he will force me to know. Which way is better? There's something about these four that makes them distinctive. The mystery harlot sits on these. Why these? Again, we took a short run last week at the lion. Let's go back and hit it again. Daniel was in prison, captured by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who had swept through the Middle East. There's a clue. He had swept through the Middle East, conquered it, He grabbed Daniel. What's the first thing he did to Daniel who was royalty? First thing he did, castrated him immediately. All of them, all of the princes of Israel immediately castrated. Standard operating procedure. Daniel royalty, no heirs, no Jewish king. First thing he did was eliminate the possibility of a Jewish king. Why would he do that? Nebuchadnezzar didn't want a Jewish king. Why not? Anyway, Babylon, that's Nimrod's legacy, had risen up under King Nebuchadnezzar and swept, as I said, across the Middle East, tearing it to pieces. Now he has, Nebuchadnezzar has control of the entire Middle East. He's devastating everything, (coughs) excuse me, everything and everyone that opposes him, and Babylon is the first of the four beasts. It is the lion. How do I know that? Again, Daniel is asking for information about when does the captivity end. Babylon is the lion. So this is about when is the captivity going to end. 
And God establishes that one of the seven heads of the harlot. Excuse me. (coughs) Let me back up here a second. Babylon is the first of the four beasts of Daniel 7. And God says that it is one of the seven heads of the, of the harlot, which is to be expected, because the harlot originates in Babylon. She is Babylon. So she is the Nimrodian Babylon, if you will. The Babylon of Nimrod was incredibly powerful. The Babylon of Nimrod also had the entire Middle East, the, the known world. Nimrod was especially wicked and evil. But God does not choose Nimrod as an empire. He chooses Nebuchadnezzar to be the lion. Why does God choose Nebuchadnezzar and not Nimrod? Because of Daniel. Does that make sense? Daniel knows Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't know Nimrod. Daniel's alive at the time Nebuchadnezzar takes Israel. So what can Daniel do? He said his watch. Watch starts on Nimrod. 586 B.C. starts the watch. Daniel knows the clock is now ticking. It's for Daniel's sake. Daniel, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon is the first of the seven heads. He's head number one. And obviously, Daniel's sake in the sense of a clock. Daniel would need to know when the clock starts in order to tell the time. Is Daniel going to know the time? He only knows a little bit of the time. He only lives through the first two heads. He doesn't see the third, the fourth head. He certainly doesn't see the five through the seventh head. Who is really going to, who's the only person that's going to know what time it is? Only persons. The people who are alive at the time of the seventh head. That is also the eighth. So Daniel starts the clock. Daniel would also know that Nebuchadnezzar had a second dream, because Nebuchadnezzar did have two dreams. And so he would immediately see that the lion is Nebuchadnezzar. He would see it because he knew the dreams. Daniel interpreted both dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. He saw both of them occur, in a sense. Second one for sure. He saw the second one absolutely occur, because Nebuchadnezzar becomes an insane, mad Beast-like, I don't know what to call him, a creature almost, for seven years. So Daniel knows that that, Daniel knows this. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. He knows that that is about not just Babylon, but also about King Nebuchadnezzar. That's Nebuchadnezzar. This is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Made to stand on two feet like a man in a man's heart. Nebuchadnezzar became insane for seven years. and Daniel knew that. Nebuchadnezzar became Daniel's close friend. Do you know? They were very close. He saw his close friend become this... In- Incredibly insane, mad creature that ran around and ate dirt. We'll describe him next week. He had he deformed. He was in, 
ended up being horribly deformed. This is the king of Babylon. Seven years. But he also saw the restoration of the king of Babylon. I, I, I should read that for you really fast. It's astonishing. Uh, this, um, just to read what, how am I doing for time? Oh, I don't have time. Next week. What Nebuchadnezzar writes about God is unbelievable. He wrote scripture, Nebuchadnezzar did. It's in the, God put what Neb wrote in the Bible. A Gentile king, a Babylonian. He glorified God. He became saved. He had what God calls the heart of a man. No question that the lion with eagle's wings plucked off, lifted up, made to stand. The beast was given a man's heart, given salvation. Daniel knew that immediately, and he knew that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were the lion. Not that? And suddenly, verse 5, another beast, the second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they, they said, thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Second beast is a bear. Who's that? Daniel would know because the clock started with Nebuchadnezzar. So he, all he has to do is figure out what comes and, and takes over the Middle East after Babylon. Who was it? It was Persia, absolutely right. Persia wasn't alone. They had the Medes as well. They call it Medo-Persia, but that's not very good. It's a bear. After, after Babylon, suddenly the second of the seven heads rises up. The second Gentile empire of the Middle East rises up. I'm giving you that of the Middle East over and over again. So now you know why these and not the Aztecs or the Brits are the Chinese. This is a Middle Eastern context. Daniel sees the bear come. It's a bear that's raised up on one side. One side is higher than the other. That's because the Persians allied with the Medes and they crushed the Babylonians, but the Persians were the entity that had all the power. The Medes were a secondary or even a tertiary force. That's Thus, the Persian bear, Iran, was not uh, in an equal companionship it was not an equal alliance. How interesting that the Persian, uh, Persia is now secondary to who? I have a lopsided bear today, don't I? We call it Russia. I have the Russian-Persian alliance. The, the lopsided bear is here. Here he is. He's the second head. And Daniel saw it. He saw that king come in. He saw the death of Nebuchadnezzar. He saw the, the destruction uh, of the Babylonian Empire. And so he knew that the Persian uh, military system or the Persian Empire was the second one. So far, the first two heads now, Daniel saw them and he could count. Now, he doesn't get to count. Who counts next in the Bible? After Daniel counts. Who picks up the clock? Daniel drops the clock, he dies. He does not see the leopard, he does not see the beast. Who sees the beast, the fourth, and knows about the leopard? Revelation 17, who wrote it? John. John picks up the watch, he's now got it. 
And he's figured out who those two heads are. Who did, who gets the watch next after John? Paul. Paul gets it next. Because Paul got the parentheses. We'll explain that next week. The mystery of Ephesians, the third mystery, Ephesians 3, 5, uh, 3 through 6. John gets to tell time. He sees the beast. We know that the, the fourth empire is the empire that John saw. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. He knew the sixth empire was the empire that he saw, the one that was is. He did not see the five that has fallen, but he knew the fifth that fell. But he did not have it all worked out. Paul works it out. Paul picks up the watch. He sees the great parentheses. We will get to see the seventh head. We can see it forming that last kingdom. So that's where we are. That's where we'll start next week. I want you to give a lot of consideration what happened in Jerusalem. It's prevent figure out what happened in Jerusalem. What happened on that Temple Mount? Why is the Holy of Holies in that place? Why will Christ put his throne there? Prepare yourself to defend it.